please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 14. The book of Acts chapter 14. Last Sunday we covered the first seven verses. I'm going to reread that and the rest of the chapter. But first, at this point, if you've been here the last few months, you're probably tired of seeing this map, but I want to show you one more time where we are. This is Paul's first missionary journey. Remember, he has been sent with Barnabas. They've gone to the island of Cyprus already, and they make their way up to, uh, as you can see, our Pisidian Antioch, and there uh, Paul preaches the gospel, and he moves on to Iconium. Now, in Iconium is where we were last week. There was a split, a division, and there was a rumor that they were going to try to stone Paul to death, and so Paul said, I think it's time for me to be moving on to the next city. So, Paul moves on to the next city. This time it is in Lystra. Lystra is the primary city for today's passage. This is where Paul actually will be stoned nearly to death by a crowd. Then he will move on to Derby after he has been stoned nearly to death. He will move on to Derby. And once he gets to Derby, they then decide, you know, at this point they could just go to Antioch. You know, they could just go, look, they could just do that. If it was me, I think I would just say, let's just kind of cut our losses and go back home. But they don't. What do they do? They go backwards through all those cities, and they go back to the port, and then they sail. You can see on this one that they sail from Italia back to Antioch uh, to return home. So this whole trip took about two years, and Paul plants churches in all those cities, and those are the Galatian churches that Paul will soon write to in a few months in the letter of Galatians. So with all that in mind, we will go ahead and read our passage. So this is Acts 14, and this is the Word of the Lord. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt, excuse me, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and fled and uh, to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice. Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all nations to walk in their own way, in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness." For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Yet even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, 
And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. It's a powerful story in many ways today. I have titled today's sermon, Confronting Pagan Idols with the Living God. Confronting Pagan Idols with the Living God. It's interesting in this passage, we really get a sample of Paul dealing not with people who have a background in Judaism and in the Old Testament. We're dealing with people who have no understanding whatsoever with the Bible. These are not people who would know the name Moses. There was no synagogue in Lystra. Uh, These are not people who knew uh, about Abraham, or at least wouldn't have known much, if anything, about the God of of Israel. They may have heard of Him, but they did not know much, if anything, about Him. And so we see how they approach evangelism in this sort of situation. I'm going to be rereading the passage as we walk through it. Let's start in verse 8. Now, before I read this, here's how this connects to us today. Paul is in a pre-Christian culture. It is a culture that has not yet heard the gospel. So it's a pre-Christian culture. Christianity sounds very foreign to the people in Lystra. And by the way, Lystra was kind of backwater, okay? As far as these cities go in terms of how they were thought of, Lystra was a little bit more thought of as a little bit more of a backwater city, a little bit off the beaten trail. And that's where Paul ends up. And Paul is dealing with a pre-Christian culture. We mentioned in Sunday school that Although Europe and North America used to be uh, dominated by more of a Christianized view of things, uh, clearly Europe has become post-Christian, and I would say North America is well on its way to post-Christian in its perspective on things. And so, in a sense, we have a very… there's an analogy here between what Paul is dealing with and what we deal with in our country. We are dealing with post-Christianity. He's dealing with pre-Christianity. And probably the only difference between pre- and post-Christian society, if you understand what I mean by that, is… In a post-Christian society, there is one added difficulty that we probably have to deal with that Paul may not have had here in Lystra, which is, uh, maybe you've heard this, sometimes people talk about a culture being inoculated to the gospel. Now, I don't know how inoculation works these days, but I know back in the day they would give you just enough of a virus, right, so that your body could build up the antibodies so that you would not catch the real thing. And there's just enough of Jesus left, just a thin kind of hollow understanding of the gospel, still pervasive, still in our culture, in the air, that people typically think, I know enough about Christianity to not really want much to do with it. I think that's where we're moving in our, in our society. So, there is still much we can learn from Paul dealing with, with, uh, with sort of what we would consider paganism or pagan idolatry in this story. All right, let's begin back at verse 8. 
Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, so Paul's preaching the gospel. And Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, like Ionian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, that may seem to you a strange reaction to what just happened. Uh, During the apostolic era, miracles were very common, and these were, Paul calls them, miracles and signs of an apostle. These were given to authenticate the message of what is happening. Look back at verse 3 of the same chapter. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly, this is an Iconium, for the Lord who bore witness to the Word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. So why were miracles so prominent in that early era of church history in a way that we're not going to expect to see them in the same level today? Why is that? Because God was giving credibility. He was giving witness. He was bearing witness to the truth of what Jesus' apostles were saying. This is God saying from heaven, what they are saying is true. I am validating it by doing what no one can do. I'm making someone who is paralyzed from birth, who is now an adult, I am going to heal them so they can stand right up on their feet and leap up and down. Does this not remind you of earlier in Acts? Even if if you look at the the language is almost identical, Peter in the temple at the beautiful gate, remember? He looks at the man lame from birth, and he looks at him intently, and the same thing happens. The Lord heals him. It's interesting. That man in Acts 3 was healed in the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. This man is healed in another gate right near the temple of Zeus. And the point here is, can can His gospel go anywhere? Yeah, his gospel can go from the doorstep of the Jewish temple to the doorstep of the temple of Zeus, and God's power is still present, and it is accessible anywhere where anyone turns to trust in Christ. Now, when this miracle is done, the people, you know, I don't speak multiple languages. I wish I did. But if you do speak multiple languages, it can be a tendency, if you get really excited or you're thinking about something, it's very easy to default back to your kind of heart language that you grew up with. And you might start speaking that way. Well, in this time, Greek was sort of what they call the lingua franca, the well-known language across the empire of Rome. So Paul is no doubt speaking in Greek. He doesn't know Lycaonian. But when this miracle happens, the people get really excited and they leave their Greek behind and they start speaking in their own heart language, Lycaonian, and they get really excited. They say, wow, Paul and Barnabas, we we must have um, in our midst Barnabas, Zeus, Paul, Hermes. You say, why would they jump to that conclusion? Now, I didn't know about this. I had to look into the commentaries for them to tell me this, but um, the writer Ovid uh, wrote uh, his uh, story. uh, I think it's called Metamorphosis or something like this. It was written about 40 years before Paul shows up here. It was a well-known story. Here's how the story goes, in case you're wondering, because I would not have known this otherwise. There's a well-known story from this same region, exact same region, that Zeus and Hermes, what is that, Jupiter and Mercury, I think, are the, the two alternate names. Zeus and Hermes show up in this same region, but they were incognito. They were just looking like people, okay? They were appearing as people, but they didn't know. No one knew they were gods. And they walked around, and they knocked on the doors of 1,000 houses in the area. This is the Greek mythology. They knocked on the doors of 1,000 houses, and they asked for hospitality. And they were turned down 1,000 times out of 1,000. But the last house they knocked on, I guess this is 1,001, the last house they knocked on was an older couple in the area, and the myth says that they brought them into the home and they showed great hospitality to them. And the gods then, 
judged and flooded the entire valley, killing all who had rejected them in their, for their hosp- inhospitality, and they blessed and turned into, a, I think, a golden temple, the one house of the older couple who had shown them hospitality. Now, if that was something you really believed was true, and that happened in your region 50 years ago, at least the myth came about, it was written down 50 years ago, if you've heard that growing up, and then two, two men show up, and they're doing miracles no one can do, you could see why they jumped to this conclusion. And if, you know, just a little fun fact here. The word Hermes, he was the messenger God. He would do a lot of the speaking, and that's why they thought Paul was Hermes, because Paul was always talking. Barnabas is saying, you know, go Paul. <laughs> so, he would be the one speaking. Paul was Hermes, uh, the messenger God. Uh, people believe R.C. Sproul talks about this, that Hermes is actually where we get eventually the word hermeneutics, uh, the idea of interpreting a message uh, later on, which has nothing to do in New Testament studies with the God Hermes. But that is ultimately probably where the word originated from in hermeneutics, studying the message. So, Zeus and Hermes. Now, my guess is when this, uh, when this excitement breaks out, I mean, these people are just, they've never seen anything like this. A man is fully healed, and they are beside themselves, and maybe at first Paul is thinking, this is a good thing. People are very excited, They're, you know, a lot of commotion, this will open an opportunity for the gospel. And then it begins to dawn on Paul, I don't know exactly when, but when probably the priest of Zeus shows up with oxen. And it becomes obvious that they're pulling out maybe some kind of weapon to kill this thing and offer a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas react dramatically. Now, if you look here at verse 13, we'll see what happens. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the, to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Now, let me just stop right there. Does this contrast a little bit with chapter 12? Do you remember Herod? The voice, this is 12.22, Herod comes out in his royal robes, remember? And the people were shouting when he gave his speech, the voice of a god and not of a man. And what was Herod's response? Finally, someone is realizing how good I am at this, and he's just up there soaking it in, the voice of a God, not a man. And then what happens? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. You remember, even Josephus, the non-Christian first century historian, confirms this very same story. So, Herod, there he is basking in human praise, and he is struck down. Why? Because he failed to give glory to God. Paul and Barnabas are not going to make this mistake. Now, here's a point of application. When we are doing evangelism and when we are trying to make outreach to unbelievers, it is inevitable, it is inevitable that while we are doing that, sometimes we will receive human approval and human praise. This may not sound maybe normal, and maybe you're like, I wish that happened more than it does. But here's what normally happens. In Christianity… See you, Mags. Sorry, Kel. That's the problem about being the pastor's wife is that he cannot do anything to help during these moments. Uh, uh, so, uh, where was I? So, yes, um, where was I? This happens at home all the time. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. So, 
with, with uh, evangelism, th there will be a mixture of things that will happen. We will both have good deeds that we will be doing in, in our society. Now, we're not going to be doing… Uh, I'm not expecting to walk around a hill, uh, a crippled person, and have them stand up who's been crippled for life. I'm not expecting that to happen, although the Lord can still do miracles. I don't think that's going to be normative. But I still believe that we will do works of service, and we will do works that honor uh, the Lord that will at times be praised by the secular society around us. There will be some things that we say, some things that we believe, and some things that we do that will receive praise from the wider society. Now, when that happens, and I, I think that will be a decreasing experience in the coming decades, but it's, it still will happen sometimes. When that happens, we must always, always be so quick in our heart first, and then sometimes with our lips to say, to point the glory back to God the Father. I, I know this story is so foreign to us, I understand we're not going to be in this exact scenario, but listen, when we receive human praise for our walk with the Lord, which will sometimes happen, whether from Christians or from non-Christians, maybe someone just notices an evidence of grace in your life and, and speaks well of you. When that happens, we have got to learn, and this is a discipline that we need the Lord's help with, to turn the glory back to the Lord, to, to, to you know, as Spurgeon would say, some of us have some gifts, others have other gifts. There's a diversity in the body of Christ, but Spurgeon would say, some people really do have extraordinary gifts. I, I know some of you, they just have extraordinary giftedness in certain areas. And we should not deny that. We shouldn't act like there is no gifting that the Lord has given us. But Spurgeon says, listen, we're going to be tempted sometimes to boast about the gifting the Lord has given us. So just stop for a second, do a self-evaluation. All of you are good at something. Some of you are like, no, I'm good at every, I'm bad at everything. No, no, no. So we're all, we all have gifts. You're all good at certain things. And some of you are extraordinarily good at, at certain things. You can even think right now, not arrogantly, just say, what are some areas the Lord has gifted you personally? Just think about that for a moment. Now, do you not find it a temptation to be competitive with others regarding that thing? Do you not find it natural, and I mean sinfully natural, to rate yourself with other people on that specific thing? You may not give a rip that, you know, someone else is better than you at something, I, you know, I don't really care about that. But when it comes to this over here, this is close to my heart, and it sometimes begins to become my identity, and I need to be so guarded that when, if anyone ever does, if there's approval here or anything, what we need to do is we need to say, Lord, thank you for your giftedness, and, and thank the Lord, is what Spurgeon said. Instead of boasting about our giftedness, he said, what person, what fool would boast about being a greater debtor? I mean, think about it. Your gifts are undeserved gifts. And if the Lord has made you extremely good at something, there's something where, you know, maybe it's something in your life where it's just really recognized that you really do have something, there's something here uh, that's pretty incredible. In that moment, you understand you are more of a debtor to God than someone who's less talented than you in that area. Have you ever thought of it that way? I had never thought of it like that until Spurgeon said, who would boast about being a greater debtor? Who would boast? I'm more in debt to God than you are in my ability to do this. Who would do that? The Lord has given you a gift. It's exactly what the word means, an undeserved gift. This healing was not conjured up by Paul and Barnabas. This was something the Lord did through them. You may be a conduit of God's grace. You may say a word that leads to the conversion of someone. And it's not wrong. Paul will say, I do all I can to save as many as possible. But we all know when Paul talks about him saving people, what he means theologically is being a conduit through which the Lord works. Paul doesn't literally save or forgive. God works through. So, when the Lord uses us, we must look back up to the Lord and say, Lord, I am 
indebted to you for that and be humbled by the truth that He may have used us in some way and to thank Him. So Paul and Barnabas, the moment the glory is going to land on them, they don't act like Herod. The first thing they do when they realize what's going on is what everyone did in that society, when you are upset and grieving, like, you know, Job kind of thing, they tear their, their clothes to show grief. This is the last thing we want. We come in to do evangelism to get glory for Jesus, and they're trying to offer animals to us. This is the last thing I want. Now, now listen, I, I know this almost sounds funny to say this, but I think there's an application point here. They don't try to use this for the advantage of the gospel. Do you know how that could be tempting? They could have said, well, listen, we have the highest position right now in the entire city. We, they could have not immediately completely renounced what was being said and sort of, let's use, let's, 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 like, let's take advantage of this human approval and let's move it towards Jesus. Let, let's just, you know, we'll give it a couple of days and we'll kind of work with this, for, we'll kind of ride the wave and we've we got a lot of approval right now. We don't want to mess that up so that they like us, they respect us. Let's use our status and we'll start moving toward the gospel. Now you say, that's kind of silly. Who would do that? But, but in, there may be lesser ways we may be tempted to try to bring the glory to ourselves, and we, we excuse ourselves that we're doing this for the gospel, but where are our motives? Paul and Barnabas won't give this an inch. They shut it down. They say, we are not gods. Verse 15 again, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We're of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. There's just three quick things we can learn here as Paul is speaking to people who do not know the gospel at all. Three things. Start with C's. Number one, confrontation. Number two, creation. And number three, common grace. Confrontation, creation, and common grace. And you see all of them right here. So let's start with confrontation. First, Paul and Barnabas are humble, but then here's what they say. Look at verse 15 one more time. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Pause there. Paul is not denying the new nature we have in Christ. He's referring, just like James 5 uses the same phrase, Elijah was a man of like nature as we are, and he prayed, and, and the Lord answered his prayer. They're simply saying, we are human just like you. But then they say this, middle of 15, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. Okay. It is impossible to do true evangelism without there being a level of confrontation. Now listen, being confrontational doesn't have to be in our tone, okay? We don't have to be, again, jerks about this. But there is an element here where the sin and idolatry must be confronted. And so Paul and Barnabas start right out, and what do they do? They call their temple to Zeus. I mean, can you imagine how offensive this would be? They have a temple to Zeus, which is, you know, in that society, th their pagan temples was sort of like the integrating part of their society. Everything sort of comes together there. It all, life makes sense in light of the gods of, of Rome. And so to say about Zeus and the priest and about the entire religious system there, to say it's vain, that means worthless. It's kind of like Jonah, those who put their hope in vain idols forsake the love that could be theirs. 
These are vain things. These are not real gods. These are false gods. These are made up. These are not real, not genuine gods. So part of evangelism must involve undermining the idols of a culture. Now, back then the idols were these mythological things, Zeus and Hermes. Today, idols have largely, to use a fancy word, been demythologized in the, in the sense of today we don't bow down to Zeus and Hermes. Uh, we don't bow down to, you know, these various Roman gods, but we do as a culture in our hearts live for idols. So, money, sex, power, approval. I mean, doesn't that cover a lot of them right there? I mean, just think in our society, we, we, we say, oh, we're not primitive like all these people who worship gods, but then what do we do? All we think about, all we talk about, all our songs and movies are about, everything is wrapped around money, sex, power, and approval. That's what our whole society is about. So, we may, not, we may not call it by the goddess or god of those particular things, but we clearly worship idols. So, a vital part of evangelism in a post-Christian culture is to reveal and to lovingly attack the idols that people are living for. You know, it could even be good in a conversation just to ask questions about someone that says, you know, I'm, what are you living for? What are you, at the bottom, what are you living for today? What really makes you, what makes you get up and go? What, what are you living for? And then someone tells you an answer, and then you just say, you know, I've heard someone say, how is that working for you? Is that satisfying you in the deepest ways? Is it all that you thought it would be? Uh, how, just asking probing questions related to the idols of a society. And Paul wastes no time to attack the idols. He says these are vain things. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to tell you good news that these are vain things. Wow, that doesn't sound like good news, does it? The money that you're living for, I mean, just you're, you're always thinking about money. Just that's how you evaluate people. You, you look at your friends and you think about how much they make. Driving through your neighborhood, you look at the new car that the neighbor has, and you think about how much they must be making and how well their business must be doing. I mean, do you, do you just sort of evaluate people in terms of the, their economic status? Do you just quietly think about everyone in terms of their financial bottom line? If you do, there's a good chance that money is an idol that you struggle with, that, 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 that is tempting you to think that's the most important thing, or whatever it may be. And Paul would say, it's vanity. No one has ever gotten to the point where enough money has satisfied them, Right? Ecclesiastes, whoever loves money never has enough. Those who are preoccupied with those things never have enough to satisfy them. So, we need to attack the idols and see why they are not bringing good news. Number two, creation, and by creation, we really mean the Creator, but look with me here in the middle of verse 15 that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Here's another area. I'll just tell you, I, I just don't get this right so often in my thinking. When you think about sharing the gospel with someone who's not Christian at all, no Christian background, my guess is we would not start where Paul starts. My guess is we would start with something like this. God loves you, and although we've sinned, Christ died for you, and He rose from the dead, and if you trust Him, you can be saved. Isn't that often where we sort of jump in? Paul does not start there. Paul starts with Genesis 1. He starts with, we got to get, get the basics correct before we… Think about it. If we get the basics incorrect, the good news won't make sense. So, here's, here are the basics, and this is so vital in our culture today because people don't often think like this. For most people, God is, is like one of the 10,000 stars you can see in the night sky, and a small cloud will completely blot God out of their view. 
Just God is some little tiny part of their life or imagination. So what does Paul say? He says, there is one God, not a pantheon, one God who made everything. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, God made you. This God they've never even perhaps heard of before. He says, God made you. You are made in His image. Now, listen, what, why is crea- creation is vital in, in, a, in, a, in an evangelistic encounter? Why is it so important? The, the answer is because if God created us, then guess what? We are accountable to Him and to Him alone for all that we are and all that we do. Every time I sin, yes, I may sin against you, I may sin against someone I know, I, but I am ultimately sinning against the one who made me. All my sin is against the Creator God. So, God made me, and I owe everything to Him. Now, creation is vital before we can get to the gospel. We've got to start with creation. Now, just pause here for a moment. You notice Paul does not do this when he's in a synagogue. In the synagogue, what does he do? Paul starts with Abraham. He doesn't start with creation. He starts with Abraham, Moses, he talks about Joseph, he talks about David, Solomon. Why the difference? Well, the answer is the Jewish groups already believed in the one Creator God. They already had the Old Testament. So, Paul doesn't need to start at square one. He starts way out here with David, with Moses. He he can start way out here. But people who've never heard the Bible don't know the Bible. You've got to start with the first part, which is God, one God, created everything, and we owe everything to Him. Number three common grace. So, confrontation, creation, and then common grace. Look with me here at verses 16 and 17. In past generations, He, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, again, next Sunday in Sunday school, the whole time is going to be about common grace, so I won't say everything here, but just a word about common grace. Another thing that I often just leave out when I think about talking to a secular person. Often, we, it's just all kind of the negative, right? We talk, God made you, and you've sinned against Him, and you owe, you know, this massive debt to God, and, you know, there's, there's, God has just wrath. No, listen, all that is right and true, and we cannot leave that out. But how often do we talk about common grace in our evangelism? I don't do this. I, this is something I want to change in the way I talk to someone who's not a Christian. Paul says, listen, it's not like God has no association with you. Every single enjoyable moment of your life if there's one Creator God, guess who gave it to you? He did. When you had that wonderful meal last week, when you had that moment of laughter last night with your friends, when you woke up in the morning and felt refreshed this morning, maybe you had a good night's sleep, maybe not, but when you, when you have a great moment, when you have these, that is the Lord, the one Creator God showering you with mercy. And, it, you know, it's not like in the neighborhood when it rains, it only rains for the crops on the Christian farmers and over the Christian houses. And over all the non-Christian farmers, there's no rain, it's just drought. And over the non-Christians in your neighbor, there's no rain, it's just, they have miserable weather over the non-Christians and the Christians have the great weather. No, God brings His rain to shine on the just and on the unjust. He makes the sun shine right now on a world full of believers and unbelievers. And God does this because His grace He gives indiscriminately, His common grace He gives to all. 
crops and seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Every moment of enjoyment in your life, unbelieving friend, if I was talking to them, the Lord, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has given you. Every year and month and day and week, every one of the million heartbeats you have every, what, 12 days, the Lord has given you. The Lord gives and gives and gives abundantly. Every day of good health you've ever enjoyed, the Lord has given you. And even in the difficult days of sickness, the Lord is there and He is available for you. How often do we bring common grace into a conversation with a non-Christian? Paul does. Paul says, listen, your idols are vain. They will break your heart and they will ultimately destroy you because they are not real and they cannot save. Don't bank your life on money. It will not be there in the end. My son just found out about King Tut this past week. Mike is about to be five. Learned about King Tut, and what, what does he say? He says, wow, he got buried with all this treasure, and it was still there when they dug it up thousands of years later. He did not take it with him. So all that we live for one day will not matter. It will rot away. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. If, you're, if what you're basing your identity on can be lost then you have the wrong God. If it's family, as tragic as it could be, that could be lost. If it's money, it could go south or one day you won't have it. If it's reputation, you could lose it and one day you won't be here to enjoy it. Whatever it is you may be banking your life on, if you can and will one day lose it, it's vain. By definition, it's vain. It's just evidently vain. So don't live for what will one day not be there. Live for what will always be there. So then Paul goes, okay, you've got one creator God, the living God the God who can save and satisfy forever. And what has God done for you? Even in your sin, He has shown you mercy for as many years as you've been alive. He's, he's bathed you in His common grace every day. And how often have we stopped to thank Him? You know, even, I assume, even non-Christian parents will raise their children to say thank you. You know, you, you give the meal, say thank you. You know, do a favor for your child, say thank you. And it's so hard to learn that. And yet, do we as parents or do we as adults, do we look up and say, thank you? Are we not the ultimate in ingratitude? Those of us who tell our children to say thank you and tell our students to say thank you and then never once thank the God who made us and gave us everything we've ever enjoyed? Think about the magnitude of ingratitude that we have if we never have looked up and thanked God for the life He has given us. Romans 1, I just... Can you turn there real quick, just to the right, the next book to the right? Romans chapter 1 is wonderful in this passage, also from Paul. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes these words in verse 19, Romans 1, 19. This is general revelation in nature, in common grace. Romans 1, 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, that's to us, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they, that is all of us, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give what? Thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals 
and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We can turn back to Acts 14, but here God is saying, listen, I have made abundantly clear my basic attributes through what you can see in nature. And yet we often fail in our gratitude to acknowledge the God who made us. So, again, let me move on to the last part here, but there is confrontation, emphasis on creation, and common grace. And it looks like the sermon gets cut short here, but here's what happens in the aftermath, verse 19 of Acts 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, those two previous cities, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, just stop there. The same crowd had Paul stoned that was trying to offer sacrifice to him as a god a few hours ago. Again, if our idol is human approval, I mean, think about trying to stabilize your identity and what people think about you. Does it not change? Sometimes you feel like you're loved, sometimes you feel like you're not. It just goes up and down. Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the Messiah, and before the week is over, the same people are saying, kill Him. Do not put your identity on the approval of the public or of crowds. It will change. Here they stone Paul, thinking him dead, dragging him out of the city. Verse 20, I just love this, but when the disciples gathered around him, I guess they're ready to do his funeral, he rose up (laughs) and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. By the way, that next day journey to Derbe is 60 miles. Yeah, I'm I'm going to stay in the hospital room for a couple of weeks at least after that, okay? I'm not, I'm not getting back. Paul, he stands up. They go, well, you know, let's, you know, Brother Paul, we loved him. You know, he's gone on to glory. Let's pray for him. You know, well, I guess let's do his funeral. And then Paul just shoots right up. All right, guys, let's go back into Lystra. Like, Paul, uh, you sure you want to do this? So Paul goes right back into the town, rests for the night. And then in the morning, he gets up and walks 60 miles. Now, I, I just have to stop here and just mention Okay, so just picture this. These are the cities of South Galatia. These are the same churches Paul will write Galatians to in a few months when they start to turn from the gospel right away. And how does Paul end? You don't have to, you don't have to turn there. How does Paul end Galatians? This, this makes you… This is moving. Second to last verse of the book to these same churches in these same cities. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus." They saw Paul, because Paul's about to make a tour back through these cities and revisit all the churches. Paul has been stoned nearly to death by a crowd. I mean, just stop. Let's just, I don't mean to be graphic, but let's just stop and think about it. Can we just for a moment think about what that meant? You have scores of people, maybe even several hundred people. They throw you out, they throw you down on the ground, and they begin to pick up the largest rocks that they can find. And they throw them like baseballs at your head and at your body. If you're lucky, one of the large rocks hits you in the head and knocks you unconscious early on during the stoning. But if you are not lucky, 
you begin to have unbelievable pain as this crowd is screaming at you and throwing these. And I wonder if Paul even had a flashback to Stephen as he stood by holding the coats as he was approving of Stephen, that first Christian martyrdom was stoned to death in Acts 7. Here now Paul is standing in Stephen's place, and he is being beaten by this mob, and this could break bones. This is going to batter you and bruise you. You're going to be bloody, and you're going to be… I mean, just what all would happen? Paul is unconscious eventually. They think he's dead. No doubt he is as bloody as could be. They drag him out of the city, and Paul says he's not deterred. He wants to go and continue ministering to these people. Look at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that's Derby, and they had made many, many disciples, they returned to Lystra, where he was stoned nearly to death, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now listen, it's one thing for me to say this or for you to say this to me. It's easy for us in an air-conditioned room to talk about through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom. I want you to picture Paul a couple of weeks after he was nearly stoned to death with no modern medicine and no hospital visit coming back to see you. He is now disfigured. His face, his body would look noticeably different. And he comes in and says to you, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Imagine the impact that would have on you as a baby Christian. You've been a Christian for a few weeks, and there's Paul nearly killed in front of you. And he comes back and says, listen, there are two kingdoms overlapping, the kingdom of the, of the world, the kingdom of Satan, and the kingdom of God, they're overlapping. And while we live in this overlap of the already and the not yet of the kingdom of Jesus, there will be wonderful heights of glory and knowing Christ, and there will be moments of pain and sorrow. And don't let anyone tell you that becoming a Christian eliminates difficulty from your life. If anything, it increases it for Paul. And Paul says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Hold your spot here. I want to turn to another spot, a couple more places if you don't mind. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I just want to read a series of passages, and I, I hope this just leaves an impression on all of us. This will be familiar to many, but these are so important for us to hear again and again. 2 Corinthians 4, we'll read several texts from Paul. Look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, that's the gospel in us, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. If you were Paul, it would be so tempting to lose heart. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 3, same letter. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, 
imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Turn with me to chapter 11 of the same book. This may be the strongest of all of Paul's sufferings being stated. Look with me, it's chapter 11, middle of verse 23. I'm talking like a madman. He has to boast to defend himself, he says, with far… This is 11.23, middle of the verse, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That happened at Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness." The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. One last passage, turn to the right to 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter before his death by Nero. 2 Timothy 3, Paul did not forget about his time at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. He mentions it in his last letter as he encourages Timothy. By the way, we find out later Timothy was converted in the Derby Lystra area. Acts 16 tells us he was known by the saints in Derby and Lystra. That, when Paul goes back there later, that's where Timothy was. So Timothy perhaps witnessed the stoning of Paul. We don't know for sure, but he saw some of the persecution Paul received in these chapters at the time of his conversion, which is just amazing. So 2 Timothy 3 verse 10, Paul speaking to Timothy before he dies, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me, where? At Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me indeed. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, when we are praised, even in our evangelism, we need humility. And when we are persecuted in our evangelism, we need endurance. Let me, let me wrap up as we move to communion. Let me just say this. How do we get the endurance Paul had to go through difficulty and still cling to Jesus? And the answer is what the author of Hebrews writes. 
Let me read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we get the strength to do this, to finish well? Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Lord Jesus received far greater suffering than the Apostle Paul even received, not mainly physically, but because the Lord Jesus received the punishment for our sins, experiencing the agonizing separation and abandonment of God so that we don't have to if we will trust in Him. And that's what these elements represent. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you have turned from your sin and you have trusted in Jesus, then in a moment, and if you're also not living in unrepentant sin or, or because of a sin out of fellowship with another believer, we would ask you in just a moment after I finish praying, when you desire to come forward and to take of these elements and to return to your seat, uh, being aware that Jesus said on the night of His betrayal, this cup is my blood in the new covenant given for many, and this, this bread broken is my body that will be given for you. And Jesus, again, these elements are not for non-Christians. Non-Christians need not the elements but what they represent, which is Jesus Himself. If you're not a believer today, we love that you are here. We're honored that you're here. We would ask that you in this moment pray and even talk to the Lord and ask Him to open your eyes and to change your heart and to give you uh, a new nature. But these elements are for those who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ. So come forward uh, as believers after I have prayed. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it is, it is just humbling to read what the Apostle Paul endured uh, for his faith in you, but it is far more staggering to think that God the Son, eternally dwelling in heaven, uh, stepped off of his throne and was placed in a manger, and then later was placed on a cross, and later placed in a borrowed tomb. The staggering nature of the humility of Jesus. God, I pray that we would be affected in our heart by the truth of what Christ has done for sinners like me, forgiven, restored, counted righteous, all by grace through faith in Christ and by nothing that we have accomplished. Lord, help our church be marked by these truths, and I pray even now you'd be with us as we fellowship with you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.